Hey everyone, welcome to Let's Get Real with Sandra and Friends, a workplace consortium podcast brought to you by Relogix. I'm excited to be sharing conversational musings about current events and how we envision the ever-changing world of work. I'm Sandra Panera, Director of Workplace Insights at Relogix. With 25 years of hands-on experience, I help value engineer global workplace portfolios and employee experiences by aligning workplace analytics with corporate real estate needs. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future podcasts? Please drop me a line at podcast at relogics.com. Bonjour encore tout le monde. Welcome to everybody. I uh, appreciate you joining us for this intimate conversation between me and Sandra. Good news is we're not going to talk too much. We're going to talk for about 20 to 30 minutes, see where the conversation is going, and then open it up to questions. The intent is hoping to have a, a meaningful conversation around a very hot topic that's in the media mainstream, that's in all of our lives, I think around the dinner table as well. Uh, so we are talking here today about flexible workspace, uh, return to office, and how we're transforming from a society that the employer tells us uh, where we need to work to one where the employee is starting to gain the momentum to say where I would like to work. Very interesting conversations uh, happening around this topic. So welcome to everyone. I appreciate the time. Uh, and I'm just going to jump straight into introductions. So my name is Ali Kaim. I'm out of uh, Montreal, Canada. So yes, uh, the snow's finally gone. I can see green. <laughs> and uh, I've been, the gray hairs probably give it away. I've been, I have about 30 years of experience helping organizations align technology with their business objectives. And I consider myself very fortunate that the last 15 years, I've been immersed in the real property side of the equation and helping the real property managers and real property owners leverage technology to meet their goals. Also with the organization that I work for, Horizon, uh, we are a system integrator focused on real property. And we love to say we're a bunch of uh, geeks at the intersection of technology, people, and business processes. But one thing working at Horizon has been having the ability to see in the last many years, actually, even before the pandemic, the journeys that a lot of organizations have undertaken for flexible workspace. So I'm hoping to bring that experience and that knowledge to bear in today's conversation. Sandra, you want to take a minute to introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks, Ellie. So my name is Sandra Panera. I am the uh, Director of Workplace Analytics and Insights at Relogix. Uh, I, too, have worked in corporate real estate for about 30 years, pioneering workplace analytics, actually, uh, kind of done the right way. Uh, I've been immersed in global corporate real estate data and analytics, supporting workplace reduction and optimization strategies, also looking at location strategy and also workforce and people analytics. So kind of bringing all of those worlds together as companies start to think about what is the purpose of workplace in their organization and how do you bring these worlds together so that you're essentially aligning your real estate goals with your company objectives. I actually had, you know, my first um, exposure to workplace strategy or sort of the impact of workplace strategy started back in the 90s. I often tell this story. Uh, I actually experienced a personal situation back in the 90s at a time when you didn't have uh, laptops or mobile devices and flexible working was not something that 
people spoke of. Uh, and I walked into my boss's office on one day and was prepared to hand in my resignation and instead was surprised with a, hold on, we'll get you set up with a laptop and you can work from home. And so that's kind of how I became very passionate about a uh, workplace strategy, flexibility, and kind of all of the things that come with what we're now calling hybrid work is just experiencing the benefit of having that option um, to be able to do what I needed to do from a personal life perspective, and then also being able to balance it with my day-to-day -day work requirements. So let's get started. So um, Ellie, with all of the experience that Horizon has had working with clients, what are the current organizational trends regarding their specific journeys as they now start to rethink their workplace? Excellent uh, question, actually. I think what I would like to do is uh, start with maybe what the uh, what we're hearing on the market most recently, right? And as I alluded to before, flexible workspace return to office is become mainstream. It's in the news daily, especially with the latest strike in Canada. It's become absolutely mainstream. And to support that, there's a lot of well-known research firms out there. And just recently, Angus Reid themselves in the month of March conducted a, a very thorough poll and survey. And what I got from that Angus Reid poll is that I don't think there's any doubt anymore. Uh, flexible workplace is here to stay. It's clear, especially for those sectors that need to accommodate traditional office space. There's no going back to uh, the old ways. It's become a de facto. Um, also, was very interesting out of Angus Reid uh, that um, marked me is that I didn't realize the percentage, but they were able to put a percentage, about 56% of people who are currently working from home who would seriously consider changing their job if they were forced to go back in the office five days a week. So that really stood out. That made me think that um, everyone clued into something I clued into over, I would say, 14 years ago. And it, just like you, Sandra, for personal reasons, I needed to change quality of life and I needed the option to be able to work from home. And I met a gentleman by the name of Wayne Lico from Horizon and I was very impressed. Uh, Horizon's been doing it since uh, long before my need, but completely accommodated a, a work from home approach. And I know... For me, that since the last 15 years, and I'm really giving my age away, um, it's transformed my life, right? And it was a needed change that I needed to do for personal. So I think with the pandemic, it made it very relevant for a large part of the population in terms of quality of life. But 56% people are saying they would seriously consider changing their job before entertaining going back full time. That's a pretty important stat. And the last piece of the Angus Reid, which was interesting for me, was the affirmation that productivity is not a valid reason for a mandate to return back to the office. It's actually the contrary. found that the productivity goes up when people are working remotely. I'd also like to cite one other research firm and one other article or study that really marked me over the last couple of years. And that would be the May 2021st, if I remember correctly, Vodantix came out with a study, uh, five best practices for success in the hybrid working era. And that, 
correlated directly to what I was doing in the space and what I was seeing my customers' challenges were. And it really talked about how there's not one model. In truth, it's aligning the organization's culture for how they collaborate with the different models of flexible workspace. So it really talks to how an organization has to think about cultural readiness or the cultural aspect of providing a flexible workspace. It's about finding the right mix uh, for the organization is one of the key success criteria. So there's many different types of uh, flexible workspace that are out there or possible. And it's really understanding uh, your organization and finding the right alignment and the right product mix, if I can use those words, in terms of having an office-centric space, space that's remote-centric, or do you have a split workforce uh, and understanding how that split exists. So it's really taught me, and the insight I got from that study was the flexibility an organization has to adopt and the alignment it needs to find with its own organization's cultural. So taking into consideration demographics, the occupant's age, what they're doing, how they like to collaborate. So that Verdantic study was um, something that fell in place for me, especially with what we're doing with our existing customers today. But I know I'm, I'm not here to talk about market and what they're saying, but really to share what we've gleaned and learned through the many experiences our customers have deployed flexible workspace, leveraging uh, technology, such um, technology that we support. And we do have customers that currently have over 50,000 flexible workspace transactions in a month. So we're talking not small or medium, but large scale. And customers that are national, municipal, private sector. And this started before the pandemic, but the pandemic has just been an amplifier. It's just been incredible what it's done in this space. So I had to pick and choose a couple of those lessons learned for today. It was pretty hard because there's a lot of lessons learned. So the first one I'm going to throw out there is we've seen too often, unfortunately, that making the flexible workspace or the return to office strategy all about the financials, about right-sizing the real estate, which is typically one of the top three costs in the domain for any organization, sort of the driving factor to instituting a flexible workspace or remote policy within the organization. And, and all the times we've seen that, it just doesn't succeed. It's really, it should be a byproduct of what you're doing in terms of providing flexible workspace. The RTO, the financial RTO, in terms of reduction of real estate and right-sizing of real estate to what the, the occupants needs, it's a byproduct. It shouldn't be a driving factor. It should never be in the statement coming from the management top down. This is why we're doing flexible workspace. It really is not about that, right? So that's one of the top ones I said, I feel today would be what I would share in there. Another one I'm bringing to the table today in terms of experience is more something that we've seen a lot of success with. Uh, those organizations that took the time to understand, and I'm using this word again, the cultural readiness 
of their organization had a much higher rate of adoption. What does cultural readiness mean? It means uh, several points. It means identifying what makes your organization successful today in terms of collaboration, understanding the demographics of your population and the occupants of that space and how they interact, right? Age plays a large part into it. Look at me, this is the first time on a LinkedIn Live event, <laughs> teaching uh, expression is an old dog new tricks, but you have to identify who's occupying the space, what are their criteria for collaboration. And customers that had a lot of success doing this did it by team, by department, by functional group, identifying how do they best collaborate. And then providing and transforming the physical space to give them those areas they need to collaborate in the way they want to collaborate. So the companies that took the time to do an evaluation of the cultural readiness uh, for flexible workspace and put in the right mixture of different forms of space to adapt and align with that culture uh, had a lot more success. I'll say I brought a third to the table to spark the conversation a bit, Sandra, but taking the approach, and again, I'm probably dating myself from the movie Fields of Dreams, build it and they will come. Not anymore. Doesn't happen in a no. flexible workspace. So we've seen not too much success with that kind of approach. There's one last one, and it's kind of a, a claim to fame that a coworker uses quite often, somebody that inspires me on a daily basis. His name is Wayne Lico. And he drives this point every day. It needs to have a focus where it, you're providing a quick, easy, and painless experience. Painless experience is being one of the key words in finding the workspace that you would like to use to collaborate in. And what do I mean by that? A lot of these mandates that are going out are, are mandates. And we're getting into conflict resolution. And I have one client who marked me with a particular phrase, space pirates, right? And how do you deal with space pirates? So you don't want to create more conflict in instituting a flexible workspace. You got to be very careful in terms of not creating extra anxiety. It's really got to be quick, easy, and painless experience for the end user. So those were my top ones that I'm bringing to the table today. But before we get into back and forth, I have a question for you, Sandra, right? Sure. <laughs> All of these mandates uh, for a return to office flexible workspace, there's a lot of decision support. There's a need for data, a need to make effective data. And this is definitely within uh, your wheelhouse. So the link of data that exists today, data that can exist tomorrow with some technology, what are you seeing on the use of data and its role, the role it's playing in the flexible workspace? So a good question. Uh, but before I jump into that, I just wanted to address the point yep. that you made about, uh, about readiness. So readiness is a critical success factor, if you will, for even jumping into sort of the data journey. The way I look at readiness is it's twofold. Number one, it's a precursor to the data journey because you need to identify what it is that you want to change. And number two, um, it can also be an assessment of 
where you are and how much you actually want to change or need to change. Um, and it's really important to kind of know that because uh, if you don't know what you want to change, uh, your data journey is going to be misguided. Potentially, you don't really sort of have that North Star of, you know, how do you sort of look at information in a way to either prove or disprove a theory? Because a lot of times there's theories in organizations that are going around and there's really nothing to sort of support whether there's truth or not to it. So it's really, really important to understand what are your objectives? Because um, that's really going to set the stage for the data journey that you're about to uh, embark on. When it comes to the data itself, usually what companies will do is they'll want to kind of baseline where they are. So as I was saying before is the readiness factor is, you know, you might have an idea in your head. Let's take, for example, you know, return to office mandates, kind of those things to say something's being put out there and there's an expectation tied to a mandate. So whether you need to come back to the office three days a week, four days a week, whatever the case might be. And so uh, if there's a problem or not, uh, and you're just basically interested in what's actually occurring, you then want to basically say, okay, how do I get at this information to understand where are we right now? And so that's really what the, the gist of baselining is about, is, is really to sort of assess, we've put something out there, there's a policy on hybrid, there's a requirement for people to come into the office a set number of days or specific days. How are people actually reacting to that? So rather than using surveys where people are self-reporting, you can actually use information from your badging, from uh, sensors. There's a variety of different ways to be able to capture data to actually validate whether or not people actually are adhering to these new policies or procedures or whatever that are being put into place. And so what happens when you now baseline is, is that you look at what have you requested of your employees what is the data telling you in terms of how are they responding to that? And then assessing how much of a gap is there between what you want versus how the employees are behaving. And it's interesting because, you know, we've all heard or we've probably have all heard the thing about, you know, culture is what you do when it's when no one is looking. Right. And so the behavior is the when no one is looking right now is, is that you're collecting data about what are the natural behaviors of people because it's not really being managed from the standpoint of compliance. Like nobody's like measuring or taking attendance every day, but through things like badging data. And as I said, you know, other data sources that you have in your organization, you can quickly assess, okay, are people actually adhering to what we're, what we're saying? And so typically what would happen then is, okay, if you're really close to achieving the behaviors that you want, because people are actually behaving that way, then check, you're doing good. If you're not, however, then you want to assess how much of a gap is there, because that gap is going to basically guide you in terms of which direction do you want to go in. And ultimately, how much change are you prepared to uh, go after within your organization? The wider the gap, the harder it is to, to get people to change, because what you want to do is you want to align to the preferred behavior that's being demonstrated by the employees, right? And so, so what we're seeing right now is really sort of that, they often refer to it as this sort of tug of war between employer and employee, where the employer is pushing for something, the employee is pushing for something completely opposite, and then there's no meeting in the middle. And so then it becomes a question of, well, how do you compromise? And again, that becomes part of the data journey to understand, okay, 
of the people that are coming into the office or not coming into the office, you want to understand of the people that are coming in, what spaces are they gravitating to? You know, why are they there? And then likewise, the people who are not coming into the office, why is it that they're not coming into the office, right? There could be a variety of reasons that, that they're not coming in. I mean, we know we hear about like the commute, you know, they feel enabled to work from home. So what's the point of commuting for an hour and a half or whatever to get to the office when they can be fully productive from home. And so as you start to think about that, the underlying uh, point to all of this is really about alignment. So if you think about your company, what is its mission? What are its values? You want to look at are the behaviors supporting the mission and values of your organization or not? And most of the time, the behaviors actually do align with the mission and the values because every company talks about things like uh, community building, sustainability, wellness, uh, diversity and inclusion, you know, all of these buzzwords, which I've been reading as of late, that there's been a lot of greenwashing or like just washing in general of these various terms where companies will put that out there as messaging to attract and retain talent. But now people are being much more speculative about what is actually behind those words. Do companies actually mean what they say? And they're being much more discerning about decisions about whether to remain an employee or move on to another another organization. So I think it's interesting that companies have a real opportunity to really start to look at the data with these different lenses to kind of understand not only is there a bum in a seat, but what is the significance of whether or not people are coming to the office and how does that help or hinder the direction that our organization needs to take or wants to take as it relates to all these other things that we've claimed that we care about and that we're supporting as an organization, right? So that's kind of really, really key from a, from a uh, baselining point of view. The other thing too is from a from a Relogix perspective, obviously we're in the workplace analytics business and most of the data that we collect first and foremost comes from sensor technology. Um, but we do, we do analytics by blending in other data sources as well to kind of show a more holistic picture. Um, often to ask the question, you know, what is the value of, you know, having sensors installed? Because a lot of times people say, well, there's only 30% or 40% of people in the office and it's too much of an expense to put sensors in, like, why would you do it? And the, the main reason is um, the speed to insights. So if you're doing manual Absolutely. data collection, you're gonna be spending a lot more time waiting for the trends to evolve. And unfortunately, right now, we don't really have that much time because time is money. I mean, that's always been the case, but now I think there's way more urgency today than there, there ever has been in the past. And so if you're looking for a way to baseline, get really, really good information quickly, sensors is the way is the way to do it because it's gonna give you a level of granularity that you can't get any other way. And the best thing out of the, all of it is it's real. It's based on real behavior that can't be disputed, right? Yeah, and I have to agree in terms of key value proposition. I don't think people Organizers have yet to come to fully understand the speed to insight. I like the way you said that, right? But uh, leveraging technology to give you that speed also allows you to become very adaptable to the trends and what is happening within that physical space. 
So that speed to insight allows your space planners and your accommodation folks to be able to adapt with the trends because yeah. space is not used the same way every single day for the next 20 years. And that's so it, there are trends in occupancy and how that space is being used. So very good points. I mean, the, the speed to insight and yes, it's real, right? Uh, you can't beat an input or an output from a sensor, uh, but it's really that speed of insight. And it'll, it brings all that adaptability and flexibility. So. Yeah. The other thing I should add to it also is, as you were talking about um, earlier about, you know, collaboration or just, I mean, right now, a lot of companies are doing one of two things. They're either looking at data to be able to make decisions about right sizing, which is absolutely true. Uh, or they're looking at the data to inform the redesign of their office space. Uh, what I find interesting is a lot of companies are going in with a preconceived notion that they need to you know, redesign their space to better support collaboration. But how do you know that your organization is collaborating or meeting? And I think, Ellie, when you and I first spoke, we talked about one of the things that we've uh, sort of seen during the pandemic and just shortly after is a lot of companies are rushing to put technology in. Technology is going to supposedly solve everything, but without, again, really sort of understanding why are you putting the technology in and what are you trying to, what are you trying to get out of it, right? And so, you know, if I think about hybrid or, you know, just the, the whole concept of hybrid working of, oh, you know, you put in a, a calendar or a booking tool or something like that, and that's going to basically enable people to work hybrid, it's a lot more involved than that. And you need to understand what is it that you're trying to solve for? Because it's not just a matter of applying technology without really knowing what is the problem or what is the anticipated problem that you're trying to solve for and therefore look to technology to, to enable that, right? We definitely have two technology folks on, the, on this call, me and you, and we're both <laughs> saying the same thing. Technology doesn't give you a flexible workspace success story. It definitely is a combination of different factors and nothing more important than understanding how the occupants need to collaborate. Not how you see it or you think you see it or an individual's gut. It should be this way. You really need to take the time to understand uh, the occupants of that space and how they would like to collaborate. I kind of promised at the beginning we wouldn't talk for too long before getting to questions. <laughs> questions. So let's turn to uh, Monica. I'm not sure. Uh, Monica's behind the scenes. She's her organizer behind all of this. Um, do we have any questions? Uh, looks like it's a fairly quiet group. Let's talk about oh, uh, let's we, talk we about another topic of ours. We were talking yesterday about uh, uh, just data visualizations, and I know we got on a call. Oh, the heat maps. Heat maps. Yeah. You're gonna bring up heat maps, aren't you? <laughs> I love I love heat maps just as much as you do. <laughs> But hold on a second, because we did get a question from the group. Okay. The question is, do we think mandates are created more hesitancy for hybrid work? Hmm. So you want to uh, start? My personal opinion is mandates and hybrid work are on opposite ends of the spectrum. Hybrid, mm-hmm. hybrid is not, can't be mandated it can't actually be managed either. I mean, there certainly can be policies that set the stage for expected behaviors, 
But if you're really looking to support a hybrid workforce, that needs to be more free flowing. And so when you get mandates that are basically telling you which days of the week you need to go into the office, as some companies do, or how many days of the week you need to be in the office, you're essentially upsetting the natural rhythm of how people uh, work best, because those are not things that you can pre-plan. And it's, it's, you know, it's based on whatever it is that's happening. It's, in fact, actually, it's actually quite interesting. We've had several conversations with friends or even just companies where they're looking at, for example, their booking data, and they know that there's an expected number of people to come into the office. And then some people will come in and realize that the people that they were supposed to meet with didn't come in that day, right? So, you know, as you were saying before about like the experience, it's absolutely important. Does a tool like that, you know, guarantee a great experience? Absolutely not. But so does uh, the same can be said about mandates is that the decision of whether you are actually going to follow through usually doesn't happen until the day of because there's other factors that play into whether or not you go to the office. And I think that that's true more so now because you can fall back on the technology tools that you have that you've been using for the last three years to be able to meet with people virtually rather than do the commute to go to the office. I didn't want to add to this question and hopefully it doesn't get me in trouble, but <laughs> too often there's mandates without the thought process behind what are the actual benefits. A mandate for the sake of a mandate of how things have been done in the past, right? An expectation. So part of the question was, and how does it take away from potential benefits? Well, a mandate just for sake of a mandate is is never going to give you the level of benefits you're really expecting out of this, even if it is just the financial ROI. You need adoption. You want to enable uh, the workforce or the occupants. You want them to come in because it's easy, it's painless, and it gets them what they need. Uh, so a mandate for the sake of a mandate can never support that. That's ne- I've never seen that work to date. So yeah, mandates and how they're presented, how they're communicated, to answer the question, it could take away from the potential benefits because it could be seen as just inflexible, I guess is the word that comes to my mind. Tough yeah. word. Yeah. I might get in trouble for that, but anyways. <laughs> but I think I think there's truth to that. Also, I mean, I, I think back on, you know, pre-pandemic times, when you know less than 15% of people worked flexibly. And so it wasn't as big of a deal. And I remember like usually after you implemented a flexible program, three, two, three years into it, you know, if you started out at let's say 20%, where the company was actually saying, okay, we need to convert 20%, 30% of our population to work flexibly. It was rare, but it did, it did happen. When you went in and did a survey, you know two, three years later, you did an assessment of kind of, again, baselining, where is the company? You often saw that what started out as 20%, 30% usually jumped to like 40, 50, 60%. And that was just a natural progression because people see what other people are doing. You don't know what you don't know, right? So the people who at the time didn't get the concept of flexibility, because it's like, no, I need my desk. I need my space in the office. It's like, I can't work from home. Like they just couldn't fathom. How do you do that? You're now on the other side, right? Because you've had three years where you've had no choice. You've had to work from home. 
And so the mandate of pushing people back, which, you know, we've, I mean, this has been in all the conversations and discussions to push people back. What's the reason? What's the why? Right? It's like, if it's about being more productive or being more collaborative or being more innovative, and you look at what's transpired over the last three years, it's like productivity continued, you know, innovation continued, companies were having like stellar years during that time. So again, what's the reason for pushing people back to the office? I'm not saying that there isn't a purpose for the office. I still think that companies should seriously consider what the role of the office is. And if there is a requirement to have an office is to still provide that as an option. The question just becomes is how much of it is required. And then the bigger question is where or what type of office space? Because again, we always looked at it as traditional office space versus now all of the options that have opened up where if people need to meet, to collaborate, to work together, to do whatever, there's a lot more options that are available because of the comfort with just working with technology that most people didn't have before the pandemic, right? Now, obviously that opens up a whole can of worms for you know, IT departments around security and privacy and kind of all of that stuff that, that they need to do a lot of catching up, but that's just, that's just the way forward. I think it's, you know, you don't want to go back to something that, you know, we've already sort of peeled that back and we're on to something else to say, well, no, you have to come back because we're not ready for that. They should be sort of thinking about how do we bring that forward? If again, 90% of the population or 80% of the population has spoken and that is the preferred way of working, are you going to force the 80% to come back into the office and change the behavior when, you know, the ship has already sailed, right? <laughs> Definitely the ship has already sailed. I don't think there's any any way we can go back completely to the way yeah. it was. Uh, we actually have another question that came in, and it looks like this is right into your wheelhouse too, Sandra. Uh, would you have a recommendation for a basic set of questions that must be raised prior to a decision to install sensors or not? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I would say the very first question to ask is what is the level of detail that you need to get at? So as many people know, there's a variety of different ways that you can measure occupancy, attendance, uh, space utilization, quantifying, qualifying data from different data points. You have to ask yourself, is data that you get, for example, from badging data good enough in order for you to be able to make costly, high-risk decisions, or do you need to go deeper? Because there's various levels of analytics. So, you know, everybody knows badging data. Mostly everybody can get it. All it tells you is how many people are in your building, if done right. You might be able to get a sense of how many people are visiting multiple buildings or, or are traveling between floors in your building. Again, it depends on how your system is set up. Same thing with Wi-Fi. It kind of places people in the building on a floor, that's about it. If however, you're looking at doing like a furniture change or a redesign of your space, or you're trying to understand the why people are coming into the office and validating, not necessarily going based off of opinion, uh, the sensor data is what's going to tell you precisely. So if you're looking for accuracy and precision uh, to basically inform a costly decision like redesigning your space, bringing in new furniture, changing out designs, maybe collapsing floors, that kind of thing. You want to know that level of detail so that you're not over-provisioning and likewise, you're not under-provisioning for space. So the key would be 
how much detail do you need to get? Do you need to get right at the seat level? Because obviously the data is anonymous, right? But if you need to understand how a space type or a subtype, so in our world, for example, we'll have like a desk type. And then within that desk type category, there's various subtypes. So let's say companies offering, you know, sit stand workstations or workstations that have uh, ergonomics uh, set up. So they've got dual monitors or triple monitors or different types of attributes of those spaces that you now want to understand, okay, people are coming in. Uh, maybe they don't have assigned seating anymore, so they can basically sit wherever they want. Where, where are people gravitating towards? What kinds of spaces? We're seeing a lot of that in sort of the exploration uh, mode that some companies are in right now, where they're, they understand that the traditional cubicle farm, which is actually surprising for me that that still exists, but unfortunately it does, uh, is out. And then it's, okay, let's experiment with different vignettes of furniture to look at what are people preferring when they're coming into the office? So of the people that are coming in, what are they actually using? And so the key is really just how much data do you want to get at sort of the level of detail? And then the second thing is the cost, right? We get a lot of questions about costs of like, well, how much money do you want to spend to get at that information? The reality is uh, sensor installing sensors is actually quite cost effective, especially when you look at the savings potential, which I know you started out at the beginning that you shouldn't be leading with, you know, the cost savings, because uh, it definitely is an outcome. It's almost guaranteed. I mean, in all the years that I've been doing it, I've never, ever seen a company that actually didn't achieve a significant amount of cost savings. And in fact, uh, I've done some of the math. It's usually the cost of implementing sensor technology is well under 2% of the total savings that you can achieve. So it's a very, very small drop in the bucket when you look at the potential of what you would learn about your space, for one, and then what is the uh, cost savings opportunity, which I like to look at it that it's not about the savings per se. That's why I throw in the word opportunity. It's what does that cost savings do for your business as an alternative? So if it's changing the furniture out or modernizing the office or adding back certain benefits that maybe budget didn't allow for in the past because the company is downsizing or whatever, it just frees up resources that instead of spending it on real estate, you can spend it in other areas that ends up being a win-win for both employers and uh, the employees alike. I think there's one important piece also that uh, I know when uh, we have these conversations that arise with our customers about sensors. Uh, sensors, at the nature of it, is about collection of data. And data is used to make decisions, insights. So first set of questions we tend to focus in on is what are those insights you're looking to gain? That will drive a lot of the decision behind what is the right technology to collect the data to allow you to make those insights. So before decisions of a, a sensor um, uh, to install sensors is understand what, what are the reflection points you're asking yourself. And that will gear towards finding the right mix of technology, i.e. sensors to leverage mm -hmm. to, give you, to give you those insights you're looking to get, right? So we always try to correlate back to a use case and the insights that you're looking to gain from having this kind of data collected. We've seen very simple sensor projects where 
uh, it was just purely on utilization of a, a particular type of space, the classic form of uh, meeting rooms, wanting to understand the reality of how utilize, utilization around our meeting rooms happen. That's one of the most easiest. Oh, and common. Yeah. yeah. Comments, easiest. Um, conversations, we, we have a lot of conversations around utilization of the space. Um, there's a lot more advanced topics coming up. I uh, just wanted to share that. It, it needs to be tied to what are, what are the decisions and what are the insights you're looking to gain from yeah. the data that you're collecting, that you want to collect. So the first question that we usually ask is, why are you collecting this data? Yeah. We have another question here about uh, what can uh, the current data tell us about the next 24 months? Uh, all of the data, including lease renewals and other economic stressors, et cetera. That's a big question. I think, I think it can tell you a lot. I mean, I know from personal experience, if you're just looking at badging data on its own or booking data or survey data on its own, it, yeah, it's going to tell you something. It's very um, right now kind of data. Um, when you start looking at the blending of data, so bringing various data sources together, specifically bringing in your uh, workforce data to understand the attributes of your workforce. So things like what's the tenure, the age, uh, job function, job families, the hierarchy of the reporting hierarchy. Uh, you can perform commute analyses to really understand the correlation between uh, office use and the attributes of the user. Uh, you can learn a lot about how you should be planning for space in the future. And so if you're looking 24, 24 months out, you start to look at the data and you start to see patterns based on different segments within the organization and the correlation between those. And every company is going to be different. Like you can't make a, an assumption for a specific generational group or tenure group because the makeup of every company is going to be different. But it certainly begs the question around, you know, who are you planning for, right? So when you start to understand who are the people that are coming to the office, even with these return to office mandates, right, is, is that you're not going to get everybody that's going to come back, but there are going to be a percentage of people in your workforce who are coming back. What you want to understand is what percentage of those people are repeat users. So they're there more frequently than the ones that come in and less frequently. What is it about those specific users that potentially brings them back to the office every day? Uh, and then when you think about, okay, as we hire new people into the organization, you know, do we need to cater more so to those types of people and build a space to accommodate those types of people, right? So that's, that's one, one thing. With respect to the lease, same thing. If you blend the data in with your, uh, your leasing information, you can quickly understand and actually build a strategy based on your lease expiry date. So you want to build a plan for the next three years, you know, show me the buildings that have occupancy of less than X percent or more than X percent, maybe in the same metro area, you know, if you can isolate specific areas and quickly identify where you need to put your focus in the next three years, because those leases are coming due. We all know that decommissioning takes at least a year and a half, if not longer, for you to sort of figure things out. Um, and you have to give notice usually six months prior. So, you know, three years is, you know, for us in the real estate world, it's just around the corner, right? If you're looking at leases that are expiring in the next three years. So you're probably already looking at leases that are expiring in the next five years, just to give you time 
to get organized around it. I'll add one point to this because we see this often. We're talking about a lot of data and we're talking data that we see too often that's in a siloed format. So it's been, badging data has been brought in for one specific reason to badge in and badge out. Have organizations really seen the value of tapping into all these siloed data sources, bring them together and how it could help you in your space planning and accommodations planning and understanding the behavior. Very few organizations have gotten there to that point, understanding that they really are sitting on a lot of valuable data. It's a matter of aggregating it together and giving it access to the facilities, accommodations, which I think would be pretty surprising to a lot of organizations of what kind of um, insights they can pull out from that data. So don't be afraid to take silo data and leverage technology and combine it and bring it together and put it in front of your space accommodation folks. Because a lot of the organizations are already sitting on a lot of the silo data. Yeah. Uh, there's another question that came in and it put a smile on my face. I don't know <laughs> if you want to answer this one. Sergio. You can go ahead. <laughs> can you define the core value behind RTO mandates? Wow. Core value. I will say this. For me, core value behind an RTO mandate for me is retention. If I had to give one really? word to an RTO mandate is retention. It's about understanding the occupants and providing them what is now being demanded by space accommodation teams and space planners out there and the owners of this space. A space that provides them with a flexible workspace uh, that provides them the quality of life they're looking for. So I tie it back to the person, the people, and that for me falls back to retention. If you don't have a, a strong mandate geared towards the person, so maybe I'm answering it differently than you're expecting, but the core value should be for me is retention. And that'll drive all the other points about having the right type of space, accommodating the right type of flexibility. If the question is, come back to the office, old school, no, there's, yeah. I, don't, I don't really have core value for the old way of doing it. Yes. Return to office mandate has a lot of value as long as you take into account the quality of life factor and it ties into retention. Yeah, no, I, I, I think the, the part that throws me is the word mandate because that's kind of the piece that yeah, pretty harsh, value and mandate sort of seems to be on, as I said, on opposite ends of the spectrum. I think personally that the core value, at least from what's being said uh, in the marketplace is this belief that you need to be together in order to collaborate effectively, to build relationships to us uh, solidify relationships. And I think that there's truth to that. I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's better. Uh, it's just, it's just a different method. And so this is the thing is, is that it's not an either or situation. It's a matter of giving options and the options aren't, Hey, today is an all hands on deck meeting and everybody needs to be in the office for this meeting, whatever, to collaborate, because that has happened uh, in the past, you know, even in organizations that were partially flex is that, you know, at least four times a year, quarterly, for quarterly meetings or whatever frequency, 
there's in-person meetings that you are required to be there in person and people still question it. It's like, well, why? Right. It's like, you know, I could be working with a team that's located in another, another state or another province and I can just dial in remotely. Like I'm going to come in for two hours and then what, you know, work virtually for the rest of the day versus, so again, it's that time management piece that I think comes, comes into it. Um, so I think that the really it's it's that thing of the core value, but it goes back to what we were talking before is what is that value based on, right? Is it based on a hunch? Is it based on a belief that's unfounded? Like you need to really understand, is there a difference? I'll, I'll give you a, a quick a story slash example. I worked at a company that used to, we were doing some analysis, we were doing some pretty deep analysis. And I remember this hearing many times as I was walking around the hallways that there was this belief that if your manager was in the same city as the employee, the employee tended to come into the office more often and therefore was more productive. And so, and I kept hearing this over and over and over again. And I was like, I don't think that that's true. <laughs> so I went back and I said, okay, let's see what kind of data we can to let's just look at what that, if there's significance in that. And sure enough, uh, so we basically, this was pre-sensor days. So we mapped card access data to HR data. So we had the hierarchy of who reported to who. This, the badge data had the people information. Uh, and we were able to look at, based on where the manager was located. So were they in the same city as their employees and therefore coming into the same office on the same days? Or were they in different places that it was impossible for them to be in the same office? So we disproved the fact that the people who were in the same city came into the office more because that just wasn't true. Uh, and then um, there was some conversation also around, you know, the measurement of productivity or the effectiveness. And that really came down to looking at the real only real measurement, real measurement, validated measurement of performance, employee performance which is your annual review score, right? You looked at the yeah. annual review score of people and that one was a bit tricky because you had to, it had to remain anonymous, but we were able to basically blend that data in sort of the background with the help of IT and basically illustrate just anonymously that it just wasn't, it wasn't true. And so again, these are just things that people will think of because it seems to make logical sense. But in reality, when you look at the data, you can very easily prove or disprove to kind of say, okay, you know, that's not the case. And therefore it's not a reason to push people back to the office. Right. So, so yeah, it's quite amazing the kind of stuff that you can do when you actually look at the data and you know exactly what it is that you're, you're looking for. So I know we're coming up to the top of the hour, Sandra. I apologize. We didn't get into heat maps. We didn't finish our conversation yesterday, um, <laughs> uh, but uh, for everyone that is on the, uh, on this LinkedIn live event, uh, the, the conversation does get to continue on LinkedIn. Uh, so the questions we were not able to get to, we will absolutely get them to them on the chat. And I think I'll, I'll say at this point in time, Sandra, always a pleasure. And um, I know I, you're fortunate enough to be having some time off soon. So enjoy. Thank you. And uh, again, thank you very much for joining today and having this conversation. And thank you to, for everyone who's uh, participated in the live event and for all their great questions. Thanks. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye.